Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles. And during today's webinar, we're gonna be joined by Mike Newman. Mike Newman is going to review some of the most important concepts uh, for practice management and go through some uh, questions that cover PCM knowledge and skills related to pre-contract tasks. A uh, quick update on a few things. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider for all six of the ARE five divisions. We offer a comprehensive test prep for the ARE with video lectures, practice exams, flashcards, and virtual workshops. Uh, and it's all available online with memberships available either for individuals or for firms, AI chapters, or schools. We recently launched our Pass the ARE Guarantee. We're so confident that if you use our expert membership uh, to the fullest, that you'll pass the ARE. And if you don't, we're gonna put our money where our mouth is and we'll pay for your retake. So to read more about the guarantee or our individual memberships and to see what kind of materials we offer, you can go to blackspectacles.com um, and all the information is there. As I mentioned, we have group memberships as well. So to learn about how you can get your whole firm on a membership and have your boss pay for it, uh, you can go to blackspectacles.com slash pricing slash firms, and you can learn uh, everything or learn learn more about it uh, there. We do have something uh, exciting that we're gonna kind of preview today. Um, we're still a little bit of a ways from a formal launch, but uh, we're developing something brand new called Spectacular. Uh, it's an online network, uh, basically like the professional network for architects uh, and firms. It's a place where firms will find their next great talent, architects will find their, uh, their, you know, their next great job. Um, and what we're doing right now is we're um, looking for folks to join uh, our beta testing group before we go live to the world. Uh, so this would be an opportunity for you to get a sneak peek of Spectacular. Um, so head over to spectacular.design. That's the URL, so spectacular.design. Uh, so you can check it out and uh, get a special invite uh, to check out the site. Our next ARE live broadcast will be on May 20th of 2021. We'll run through an exercise from one of our virtual workshops with instructor Darian Ziegler. She'll go through a project management exercise and discuss issues related to office standards, development of project teams, and so forth. Uh, this is a great opportunity to see how hands-on and in-depth our virtual workshops are. So don't uh, miss it. It's gonna be awesome. Um, and then uh, let's see, today we're gonna be engaging exclusively in our online ARE community. So head over to that thread if you haven't already. I'm gonna do that myself right now. If you go to community.blackspectacles.com um, and click on ARE Live on the homepage there, the first, uh, the first let's say, thread is pinned at the top. Uh, ARE Live Practice Management Mock Exam. Uh, so that's where we're gonna be uh, today. Uh, that's where we'll be answering questions. And uh, what's kind of nice is uh, that we're also, uh, for those of you who engage uh, in that thread on our community, um, we're going to be handing out uh, a free t-shirt uh, to uh, one lucky winner at the end of the broadcast. So don't forget to stay tuned until the end to see if you won. Um, and all you got to do is just go over there and say hi. You don't even have to uh, write us a fancy question if you don't have one. Um, you know, the community is designed to be a place where you can go to get support and get your questions answered. Um, it's also a great place to read some stories about people who are going through the same thing you are. Um, so certainly encourage you uh, to head over to the community and check it out.
Lastly, today, we have a special discount on Black Spectacles 12-month memberships to share and to help you along in your journey. Uh, I'll provide that coupon code at the end of the show, so make sure you stick around for that. My guest today, of course, is Mike Newman. Uh, he's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep lectures. So thanks for joining uh, us, Mr. Newman, and with that, I'll hand it over to you. Okay, let's uh, let's jump in here. Um, as Mark was just saying, um, that uh, uh, pra practice management uh, is very similar to project management, um, but it's really talking about issues that are uh, kind of pre the contract, if you will. It's sort of how do you set things up and how do you um, how do you have a practice be sort of ready to roll. Uh, when it's uh, ready to actually start working on, on projects. And so uh, you'll see that there's a lot of different ways you can look at those kinds of issues. Um, and in this first question, it really is sort of something that could be either on practice management or on project management. But the reason that we have it on this one is because it sort of gives us a chance to look at a whole series of issues that are about setting up a practice and understanding how the money uh, works for um, uh, billing and, and things like that. So uh, we just have a couple of questions here that we're going to run through, um, and I think we should just dive right in. So I'm just going to start here with number one. An architecture firm is working on a new recreational building for a local university. The table below is used to track the progress of work against the amount of fee allocated to each phase. The overall fee for the project is $400,000. The schematic design phase is now complete, and the design development phase is almost complete. Approximately how many hours can JB spend on the design development phase in order for the project to remain profitable for the firm? And then we have this table down below that, as it mentions, is sort of a working document. It's the kind of document that you would keep on during a project and sort of follow along to see if uh, we were ahead or behind uh, on uh, the project. Now, that table is a little small uh, to see, so I'm going to zoom in a little bit here, and that'll give us an opportunity to kind of just talk it through. Now, my guess is, is that many of the folks uh, who are looking at this right now probably kind of were able to look at this and say, oh, yeah, I get it, and, and answer it right away. But I would imagine that a few of you look at it and it's like, wow, that's a lot of numbers. What is going on? it just looks complicated but in fact it's actually pretty simple it's just that it touches on a whole series of issues about how you run a practice uh, and so it it looks complicated because it's layered but it's not actually complicated it's pretty straightforward so let's just run through it real quick so we have up here the total fee for the project so we've got a uh, $400,000 fee and then down here we've got there's the SD, the schematic design. There's DD, design development. There's the CD, which is contract documents. And then there's bidding. And then there's CA or construction administration. And so the phases of the project are all listed out. And if we think of the 400,000 as not dollars, but representing time, well, then we can start to pretty easily imagine if 
each of these phases is broken out into a percentage of the overall amount of time that we have, then we can see it pretty clearly. And it says even right below here, it says SD, schematic design, we have 15% of the overall amount of time. Um, and then design development, we've got 20%. CDs, contract documents, we've got 45%. Uh, bidding is one of those weird ones because it's a small 5%, but it's a pretty uh, important and intense one. Uh, and then there's CA, uh, Construction Administration, at 15%, which is kind of uh, funny, right, because the CA uh, has the same uh, percentage as, uh, for example, schematic design, but it drags out over a much longer period of time because it's over the entire length of the construction process. But presumably, it's only one or two people working on it as opposed to uh, SD and DD and CDs, where there's probably many people working on the project. So you can kind of see the overall sort of flow of time in the, in the project, but it's slightly more complicated than that because while time is money, it's not that everybody's time is equal to the same amount of money, which, you know, sounds odd and sort of vague and complicated, but uh, in fact, actually, it's sort of pretty straightforward and logical. Uh, and if we look through here, we can see it pretty easily. We have uh, a series of employees working on the project. So we have Jose, uh, we have Janice, we have Tony, we have JB, and we have Allison. And Jose, in terms of the hourly pay, is making $60 an hour. And Janice is making $50 an hour, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of interestingly, while the fact that Janice is making $50 an hour is super important to Janice because, you know, it's how much money she's making. And so that's going to be really important to her. It actually isn't all that important uh, to the overall process because that's only one number in what we need to really think about it. Uh, if Janice works on a project, on this project, for an hour, the company isn't going to bill just what it costs in terms of the hourly pay to Janice. We also have to bill for all the other things that we need to be able to spend on. The billable rate that we're going to charge for Janice is going to be much higher than just her uh, hourly rate that she's being paid. So, uh, for example, there's got to be somehow that we're going to be paying for insurance and rent and office furniture and computers and uh, the coffee maker and all of those things uh, all have to get covered somehow, plus Janice's pay and Janice's benefits and uh, all of you know the time that she's uh, going to conferences and all of those kinds of things. And so there's a relationship between what uh, somebody is being paid and what their billable rate is, and that's usually referred to as a multiplier. And so typically, uh, multipliers are between three and four. Um, I've chosen to use 3.5 here in this example, uh, but you'll find that actually around the country it varies a bit. Um, I think it goes down, I've seen some places as low as like 2.5, uh, and other places maybe as high as 4.5 or 5 even. Um, but the typical range would be between three and four. Uh, and so that means that, uh, as an example, Janice, at $50 an hour pay, uh, if we're using a 3.5 multiplier, that means that her billable rate is 175. 
So that means if she works for an hour on this project, we're subtracting $175 from that $400,000 fee. So time is money, but not everybody's time is the same amount of money. And that's why this can be complex uh, because if you're the project manager and you're trying to sort of organize uh, who's working on what, you wanna make sure that the right people are working on the right part of the project. Because if I have something that is very complex, I wanna make sure that the people who really understand that and have the expertise to understand that and are probably being billed out at a higher rate are, are doing that particular work. But if I have something that's maybe less complex uh, or something that uh, could be done by somebody with less experience, well, then I want to make sure that I'm using somebody with less experience so that we're not using up all of our billable um, uh, billable hours in terms of uh, uh, running through the fee. Uh, and every project manager you will ever know will complain about how much uh, the principals in the office want to work on projects because the principals cost so much. Uh, and so if you're a project manager trying to balance these things, every hour that a principal is working on something, you could probably get two or three hours out of uh, somebody else. And so it has to be really just the work that is appropriate for their expertise level uh, for it to really make sense. If I have a big firm, this can be fairly easy because we have lots of people and we can kind of organize it fairly straightforwardly. Uh, if I have a smaller firm, it starts to get a little bit more complicated because I just don't have that many choices. But, all right, so back to it here. We've got this setup where we have the uh, em employees, their hourly rates, the multiplier, and therefore then the billable rate that we're working with them on. We've talked about how we have the five phases up here, schematic design, design development, CD, bidding, and uh, construction administration. And that if uh, schematic design is 15% of our overall $400,000 fee, that puts us at $60,000. And so through the project so far, they've done schematic design, as it said in the question, and they're almost done with design development. And we can see that, uh, okay, Jose worked 20 hours, 20 times 210 billable rate gets us to 4,200. Uh, Janice worked 50 hours at the 175 billable rate that got us to 8,750. Et cetera, et cetera. 8750. Then Tony is at 21,000. JB was at 12,006. And Allison at 12,006. We add all those up and we get to 59,150, which you'll note is just under the 60,000 that would be the 15% of the $400,000 fee. So at the end of schematic design, hey, everything's great. We're running a little bit ahead, which is sort of about appropriate, um, but still pretty close to sort of on track. So our estimates were right when we put together our proposal. So at the end of schematic design, everything looks pretty good. And now here we are in design development and we have 20% of the overall fee. So 20% of 400,000 is 80,000. And so when we have then all the people who have been working and we can start to see the 40 hours for Jose and that gets us something, 100 hours for Janice and so that's uh, 17.5 and then uh, 130 hours for Tony uh, going there. And Allison has 200 hours and that's at 21,000. 
Uh, and we're missing still, uh, apparently JB is very bad about getting uh, his time cards in. Uh, we're missing JB and we're trying to figure out how many hours uh, do we have available for uh, JB to be working on this part of the project uh, at this stage of this phase of the project uh, without kind of us going over our 80,000 that we've set aside for design development. So yeah, it looks complicated. It looks like a lot of numbers, but all we're really doing is just adding up these numbers and then seeing how they relate to 80,000. Uh, and then we're gonna relate that to the billable rate of 105. So let's just do that real quick. Uh, if we uh, add up 8,400 plus 17,500 plus 18,200 plus 21,000, I pulled out my little calculator here. Uh, I believe that gets us to 65,100. So that's pretty with good. The, so with have, that phone, with that phone you've got over there, Mike, I was assuming, you know, that you were pulling out an abacus or something like that too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, using using my abacus. Uh, so if we've got, uh, we subtract sixty-five thousand one hundred from the eighty thousand, uh, and that's obviously going to get us fourteen thousand nine hundred. So we have fourteen thousand nine hundred of billable time that is still available for JB to be working on before we get to the 80,000 uh, that we've set aside for design development. Uh, so if we take that 14,900 uh, and we divide it, so we're just gonna do it this way. Uh, sorry if that's confusing. Uh, we divide that uh, 14,900 by 105 that's gonna end up equaling, I believe it's 141.9, something like that. So what that's saying is we have this much uh, 14,900 in billable hour time. We have a specific person that we're thinking about. They're being paid a specific amount per hour. There is a specific multiplier on their uh, hourly work that multiplier gets us to a specific billable rate per hour. And so we can then just divide that billable rate into that amount uh, that's left. And that gets us the 141. Um, we're gonna go backwards now and look at the actual answers that are possible. And uh, none is certainly not an, a reasonable answer. Uh, 200 would put us over, but that 140, that's really a sweet spot right there. Uh, now, A would also be uh, uh, plausible, but uh, B is the better answer because it's more uh, appropriate to the situation. Now, one quick little addition here is we could have actually used the numbers uh, of 14,900 and then added in the 850 that was left over from uh, the schem schematic design phase because technically that's all still part of the 400,000 that we can uh, kind of uh, use. So you could have answered it either way. Either way, you would have gotten to the 140. Um, so it, it's a reasonable thing. But this uh, total sort of chart, um, you'll find that project managers use these kinds of things all the time. And you would start before a project actually started, before you had the actual hours that people had 
uh, actually logged in working on, on the project uh, at specific phases, you would have your expectations. So you would start to lay out, um, you know, for schematic design, I think uh, Allison's going to work about 100 hours on this project. And so you would, uh, you know, write in, uh, you know, 100 hours. Uh, and then you'd have all of those sort of expectations, how much that would be. You'd multiply that times your 105 billing rate. You'd have an amount of money there. And then as you got real-time information, you would update it and change it. And it would go from being a, a blue number into a red number or however you do it in your office. Uh, and uh, it would constantly being uh, changed and updated. So for clarity's sake, I left uh, this area empty. But in fact, this area would be filled with sort of the expectations of how you're hoping the project will go. And almost never does a project go the way you think it's going to go. But you should be, after you've done it a few times, you should be able to sort of get pretty close uh, to how you think it's going to roll forward. But the big thing this does is it allows you to see when problems are coming. Uh, if it turned out, as an example, that uh, JB in this question had actually, say, done 250 hours worth of work, and then we multiplied that by the 105. Well, that's clearly going to be way more than the $14,900 we had left. And so we would be uh, in, a, in a minus situation down here um, with uh, being very far behind now, probably about five or uh, seven or $8,000, something like that, behind uh, where we had hoped to be at that point. And that means we would have to find that uh, savings somehow in either the CD phase or the bidding phase or the CA phase. And so it would allow us to see that coming and then kind of make changes and try our best uh, to keep the, the cost down so that we can uh, get the project done for the right amount of, um, of fee. So it looks complicated, but in fact, it's uh, pretty simple. Um, just once you sort of understand the gist of what's going on. So the 140 would be the correct one there. My quick question for you, uh, Andrew, uh, from the communities asking, um, could you explain how you would typically determine the multiplier? Yeah, it, you know, it's a great question. It actually, um, I should say, that's a, um, <laughs> I, I was trying to keep it simple, Andrew, but okay. Um, uh, the multiplier actually will change even within a firm will change uh, for lots of reasons. One is just sort of simple, uh, just to make it look reasonable. Like if somebody's being paid, you know, $37.25 an hour, uh, you know, if you multiply that by three and a half, it's going to end up being an awkward number, but you're probably going to be showing your clients you know, $100 as a billable rate, $120 as a billable rate, $140 as a billable rate. So it'll it'll adjust specifically just so that you get nice round numbers, so you're not being confusing to the to the clients. Um, and but then the other things that push it up and down that are more really what you're asking about uh, would be things like, um, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how post pandemic relates how this changes in post-pandemic issues. But um, if I'm working in, uh, let's say, I don't know, what do you think, Tokyo. Uh, we all know Tokyo is an incredibly expensive city. Uh, the rents are going to be very, very high in Tokyo. So therefore, uh, what I'm paying people and the rents 
uh, are, uh, are both going to go up, but the rents are going to go up at a higher rate than what we're paying people. So I'm going to have to have a higher multiplier in a place like that than I would in a place that had very, very low rents. Um, if I'm working in a typology, mostly, uh, that is pretty straightforward and easy uh, to, that, you know, the firm has a track record and you've done a million of these things and you stay in your lane and you're always doing the same thing and maybe your insurance is actually pretty low comparatively, you might be able to reduce your uh, multiplier because the insurance is pretty straightforward, but you might compare that to another firm where they're always trying different things and their insurance company is like, all right, you know, we got to keep the insurance rate up. Um, there's, a, there's a whole series of different issues, um, but another big thing is uh, just the sheer fact of how uh, the economy is going, that if things are going uh, really well, firms will generally start to raise their multipliers in order to sort of build in some little extra profit margins so that when the economy starts to go back down again, and they can start bringing those multipliers down, get lower uh, overall fees so they can still get projects, um, but they have a little bit of a buffer from extra pop profit or uh, uh, extra margin that they've built up uh, over the previous couple of years. So there's nothing specific uh, about the multiplier. It is likely to change uh, for lots of different, different reasons. Um, but you know it will change. It'll almost never go too low, and it can only go too high because eventually you're just much higher than everybody else around, and nobody will ever give you a project uh, because your billable rates are too too high. So it'll go up and down a bit, but not massively. Does that answer Thanks, that? Michael. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Okay. Number two. Um, that was a long one. We'll, the rest of these will go pretty quick. Uh, an architecture firm is a few years old and has focused solely on residential and commercial projects. The principal feels that education projects would be a great fit for the firm and the firm's strengths. The principal notices an RFQ, a request for qualifications, for a new elementary school in a neighboring town, but it specifically asks for examples of past educational projects as part of the RFQ. Uh, how should the firm respond? Um, this really should say RFQ. There. Um, so the question here is, uh, you really want to get into this specific uh, place and they're asking for specific uh, experience with that typology. Uh, what do you need to do? So let's take a look through the answers. So how about we'll start with D. Uh, D, uh, provide a written proposal about how you would approach the project in place of examples of work. Well, I mean, that's certainly plausible, um, but they specifically asked for uh, examples of uh, experience. It seems unlikely that uh, on something as specific uh, typology like uh, an education realm, uh, school typology is very likely to, to want a, a, a strong sense of, um, of experience. So that's plausible, but doesn't seem like a great answer. Uh, answer C. Uh, don't answer that portion of the RFQ. Well, you can't really do that. Uh, I mean, it's not like it'd be illegal. Uh, it's just that it, it sort of looks like you're hiding something. It, 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 they, if you're doing an RFQ, you've just got to kind of follow through with uh, the RFQ as best you can. Uh, and then there's B, 
which is assemble the firm's best work so far and include that as your experience, whether or not it has to do with education or schools or anything. Uh, and that's certainly plausible. That one sounds pretty good. So, so far that one's like the best that I've seen. And then we're gonna look at A, partner with another firm that has more educational experience. Uh, and this is definitely the best answer. So what's, what's this really saying is, uh, you know, maybe we're a small firm or a new young firm and we have experience of one kind, but we don't have the specific experience, but we could partner with an engineering firm that has a lot of experience in schools. And so we're really relying on their experience to then be able to get us into the room and then we can build our experience through this project and eventually uh, be able to do RFQs like this all the time. Another example might be you could partner with uh, folks who are specialists in education issues. Maybe they're not architects, but um, in uh, education curriculum and that you're partnering them and bringing them in. And so you're able to ride on their experience, uh, which is meaningful because they are then giving you tons of information uh, that will be useful to the project. So it's useful for you and it's potentially useful uh, to the um, folks who would be doing the hiring here. And then uh, another classic example of this is maybe there's an, uh, like a firm from out of state that does these kinds of projects all the time, but they need a local firm to be the sort of uh, you know architect of record or something along those lines. Uh, and so you partner with a very experienced out of state firm and that uh, allows you to sort of go in saying that, yes, this team is very experienced. And once you've done one or two of those, uh, you are now experienced and you've learned through the whole process. So this is a classic kind of question for NCARB because what they're really trying to get you to think about for practice management is, uh, you know, how do you kind of uh, put all the pieces together uh, it's not just about being optim optimistic. It's not just about saying, oh, we'll, sh you know, our work is so cool. We're just going to show them what we've got and I'm sure they'll love us, right? It's saying, how do we be strategic? How do we be rational? How do we uh, kind of move these things forward in a way uh, that is going to make logical sense and be uh, smart in terms of uh, how the economics of it work? Uh, and this, um, it would be a sort of a classic kind of answer for uh, NCARB, which would be, uh, you don't have the experience, you want the experience, you wanna be able to do more of these, then find a way to do that. And in this case, it's uh, uh, partner with somebody because that's the best of the four choices that we've shown. Okay, number three, the university client says they want to have detailed as constructed record drawings. Um, sometimes people will call these as-builts. Um, uh, you'll hear you'll, more people would on the street call them as-builts, but it actually is referred to technically as as constructed record drawings. Once the building is ready to be occupied. So the university says they, they wanna have the as-builts once the building is ready to be occupied. Does the architect need to supply these as part of their B101 contract obligations? So first thing you need to realize is the B101 is the AIA owner architect agreement. Um, it's the big standard one. There's a whole bunch of variations. There's the B101, the B104, the B107, and they're all like different, uh, you know, big projects, little projects, uh, 
uh, stipulated some uh, hourly, a whole bunch of different ranges of, of, uh, of specific issues. But the B101 is kind of the classic uh, uh, that everybody refers to. Uh, and it's a great thing for you to read. Uh, you should absolutely read the B101 and the A101, which is the owner contractor agreement, and the A201, which is the general conditions. You should absolutely read them uh, and have a pretty good feel for them for both practice management and project management uh, exams. Um, so, all right, uh, are you required to supply the as-built um, given the requirements that uh, are in the B101 that you have signed, uh, whoever is doing this project has signed uh, on the contract? So let's take a look at our potential answers. So let's look at D first. So D says, no. Uh, as it is part of the requirements of the contracts, the B101, the A101, and the A201, like I was just saying, the owner-architect agreement, the owner-contractor agreement, and then the A201 general conditions, uh, that the final work by the contractor matches the contract documents, meaning your drawings, uh, put together by the architect. So D is saying you shouldn't need to have any as-built because the project should have been built the way the contract documents were drawn. Um, anybody who spent any time on a job site knows, well, that's not really true. Uh, there are just all sorts of things that are gonna change. It might be because of an inspector who came by and didn't like something. It might be because the ownership has changed their mind about something. It might be that uh, some new information has come up. Uh, it might be that the duct just didn't fit the way everybody thought that it would. Um, I'll tell you, that has happened to me many times. Um, I had a situation recently where we had to completely redesign a bunch of kitchens because uh, we thought the uh, exhausts uh, for the kitchens would fit in the, the wall cavity of a big six inch stud, and it totally did not. Um, there was, turns out there was a lot more metal in there than I was expecting. And so we had to redesign it because it's just the nature of these things. You know, that happens all the time. Uh, and so projects are often not wildly different from the uh, uh, drawings, but they're different enough that there are subtle little differences. So while D sort of seems like a kind of, you know, hard-nosed NCARB kind of answer, it's actually, you can kind of tell that it's not the correct answer because it's just too... Um, whenever it says never or anything like that, you should always be a little concerned, like the idea that it's saying, uh, you know, it will, the, the building will absolutely match the contract documents, just, it just doesn't ring true, does it, right? So it is not D. All right, so let's look at the other ones. So A, yes, because it is important for the owner's ability to maintain the, the building into the future to have the correct information. Well, that's true. Is it is that a reasonably good answer? It's certainly true that it's important for the owner to know what they've got built. It'll be easier to maintain and all of that. Let's look at B. B, no, that is the contractor's responsibility. Well, it's sometimes the contractor's responsibility. I don't know that it's always the contractor's responsibility. Let's look at C. C, yes, if it is listed as a supplemental service of the architect on the contract. And that is absolutely the answer. So what this is saying is, while there are standard contracts, because there's so many different situations, uh, you know, 
different kinds of uh, ownership, different kinds of architects, different sorts of uh, work being provided, different typologies. There's just so many different options out there that the contracts themselves have to have a fair amount of flexibility built into them. And so there are certain things that are just assumed to be part of something like the B101. Um, and you know, the basics of the contract will all be you know, part of that. But then there's a whole bunch of things that might be there, but might not be. So maybe you're supplying uh, marketing drawings, uh, like uh, 3D um, images of the building that are going to be used in a, uh, a marketing campaign in order to raise money or something like that. Well, that would be a supplemental service. It's something that's not crazy for them to ask of you. It's not totally unusual. It's just that it's not part of the basic. And so you have to have a way to say, yes, we are adding this into the contract. So when you read the contract, you'll see that under the supplemental services section, which I'm trying to remember what section that is, I think it's section four, um, you'll see that there's like a big long list, there's a whole big table, and it'll have a, a spot where you can say, all right, uh, the as constructed record drawings, yeah, that's in the architect, and you would literally write in architect uh, next to it. And so that suddenly means that it is now added into the contract. This is another classic type of question for NCARB because what they're really trying to do here is they're trying to get you to realize that uh, uh, the, the answer is often, well, let's just go back and, and look at, at the contract or let's just go back and look at the uh, office manual or let's go back and look at uh, what the design log said. They want you to take seriously the paperwork in the process. So it's not that you're just saying, uh, oh yeah, let's, uh, well, we can supply that. Like that's not appropriate to the exam. You might do that in the field uh, to keep your client happy or something, uh, but that's different from what the exam is about. The exam is about uh, understanding how uh, the paperwork affects the process. All right, hopefully that makes sense. Um, and supplemental services and additional services are two related terms. Supplemental services is the one that's got the whole big list. Uh, additional services is where you could write in different uh, um, things that are not part of the pre-written list. Okay, number four. What is the best way to mitigate risks on design projects? All right, I'm gonna start at the bottom here and take a look at D. Uh, work with the GC to share profits so that they are less likely to point out problems that could lead to lawsuits. Um, that is, actually, I mean, it sounds sort of reasonable, but it's actually super problematic. Uh, you, in a typical design bid build project delivery, which would be the assumed project delivery for most of the questions, unless it says specifically a different project delivery. Uh, if you are, think of what the point of the relationships are there, you have a contract with the ownership and you have agency with them. You can speak for them. You have a role to play in protecting them. 
uh, from, you know, so that they understand what's happening on the job site and all sorts of different relationships with the ownership. And you can't just sort of go and make a little side deal with the GC to say, uh, hey, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back, which is essentially what D is saying. So you have to be careful when you start thinking about these things. It may seem logical, but in fact, that's really a bad idea. All right, so let's look at C. Limit email communications between project contributors and communicate on the phone instead. All right, can you imagine NCARB saying, yeah, you should limit communications? Clearly, what they really want you to do is not limit communications, but be really good at communication. Now, you should limit if it's excessive, right? If you're doing too much communication, well, there's no point in doing that. It's just wasting time and money. But there's almost no way that NCARB would say you should limit your communications. Um, what they're really going to say is uh, it's all about having good communications. So C is no good. So now we've narrowed out uh, from four, we're down to two left. Let's read the, the, the what's left here. Uh, A, only work on typologies that the firm has experience with. Well, that seems sort of reasonable. And B, work with a third party reviewer after each new project in order to see mistakes and opportunities for future work. Uh, both of those are reasonable. I'm gonna go ahead and say that B is a better answer. Um, it's not really uh, in the long game of running a practice reasonable to say, uh, well, we've done a house, therefore we should only do houses. Or we've done an office space, therefore we should only do office spaces. At some point, the economy is going to change, the market's going to change, something's going to happen. You're going to need to be more flexible than that. Uh, and so the A seems reasonable and it's not a terrible answer, uh, but it's not as good an answer as B, which is uh, another concept that NCARB uh, is going to uh, push, which is you should, at every opportunity, uh, try to learn how to do projects better. Uh, and getting third-party reviewers, looking through your drawings, looking through how the project went. Um, the third-party reviewer could be third-party in-house. It could be somebody uh, who works for the firm but didn't work on it, didn't work on that particular project. Uh, and you're just getting a second pair of eyes, running through, learning the lessons, and then logging those for the next time something comes up, because that's what mitigating risk is about, is seeing where things went well, seeing where there were problems, and then uh, finding ways to uh, not have the problems next time. All right. Like that was a good one. I liked how you uh, sort of went through the questions um, and sort of eliminated the, all the bad ones and then kind of like doled it down to the, the, the two that you were kind of picking from and then try to pick the best one. That was a good example of sort of that, uh, you know, the test taking mindset you need to get into when you do this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Good. It's um. Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of obvious to, to say it, but uh, you actually have to kind of uh, force yourself to think about it. Um, you have to say, all right, you know, A, not necessarily what is the, the right answer. This is one of those little tricky things about um, yeah. doing the test is that, you know, there will be all kinds of things that, that they'll ask you about that you will have seen either yourself or uh, somebody who works in the firms you, you've been working in, uh, that it's something that they would do normally. But like, is that, 
is that what NCARB is going to think is the right answer? Right. So it's partly like not necessarily what is the right answer. It's what does NCARB think the right answer is? Yeah. Uh, and you know, like what's the paperwork version of the right answer? So that's one thing you have to get in your mindset and really consciously ask yourself that each time. And then the other thing is, yeah, just like what are the things that you can get rid of right away and then get rid of them so that you can really then uh, parse and focus on uh, the way the specific wording of the uh, answers that are left. If you can get rid of one, way better guess uh, one out of three than one out of four. Uh, and if you can get rid of two, that's obviously way better to have one out of two to be guessing at than uh, one out of four. So absolutely, uh, you got to think about these things strategically. It's funny, my kids are taking standardized tests this week, uh, and uh, I think they need to sit with you for, for about 10 minutes to get a little, <laughs> a little uh, primer on what to do. My guess is that your daughter could school me a bit on, uh, on quite a bit of this. So. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, all right, number five. Uh, while you were working at a mid-sized firm of good reputation, you decide that maybe now is a good time to leave and start your own firm. In the office conference room at the end of the AOC meeting, owner, architect, contractor, AOC meeting, which is usually a weekly meeting, sometimes every two weeks, something like that, through the construction administration of the project. So at, uh, at the end of the AOC meeting in the office conference room, uh, uh, during the first phase of a three-phase project, you pull the client aside and quietly let them know that you will be leaving the firm and that you could easily take on the next phases of the work at significant savings to, the, to them for, this, for those next phases. This situation is, and we have a couple of different options. I'm going to jump straight to the answer and then we'll kind of talk around it a little bit. Uh, this is B, unethical. So uh, there are all kinds of examples where something really similar to this will happen. So something like uh, you're in that situation, you decide to go off and start your firm, and the client says to themselves, um, you know, that person who left the office was actually the person we were most connected to and, and felt most comfortable with, and now they're not at this firm anymore. Maybe we should stop working with this firm and go work with their new firm. Well, that's totally reasonable. That is completely up to them. They have all the right to do that. Uh, they can, you know, they're the client. They get to do kind of whatever they want as long as it's within a sort of reasonable, uh, uh, not doing anything illegal or anything. You know, that's totally reasonable. It is not reasonable for you to use your employment uh, while you're employed, especially in their office, uh, to uh, secretly steal clients. Uh, it is considered by the AIA Code of Ethics unethical. Um, you probably, when you signed uh, your uh, employment papers, uh, you probably signed something that would say that you could get sued if you did something like that. Uh, it probably is in the office manual. So one possible answer to something like this would be, well, you know, check the office manual, check the, your employment contract. Uh, you know, would this be considered uh, um, a, a problem if you did that? Uh, but essentially, this is an unethical thing to do. 
Um, and it's not only unethical, it's actually problematic. Um, so this it's sort of similar to C, which says problematic as it will not be clear to the client if this is a savings that would uh, they could also get with the if they stayed with the existing firm. And what that's starting to get at um, is that one of the problems with this kind of thing is it won't necessarily be clear and obvious to the client what's actually happening. Uh, are, are you suggesting that you're still going to be covered by their insurance? Um, are you still going to be working with the same, uh, you know, engineers? Uh, that it's confusing enough for that client that unless you're being incredibly clear about everything you're talking about, it's you, you put the client into a situation where they, they just don't understand what's happening. So it's unethical and unfair to the original architecture firm. It's potentially problematic and uh, unfair to the client um, because they don't necessarily understand what's happening. And so they could be very confused and making assumptions um, about the fact that, you know, suddenly maybe you're a one person or two person firm and they've been working with a 30 person firm and the you know rate of processing a project is just going to be different, um, and you know they may not have understood that. May, they may have just thought it was like a a paperwork designation, and that you were now still using the same team, but now had your own name on it or something. It's just confusing and not reasonable. If they, as I said, want to make that change once something has happened, that's different. Uh, that's on them and it's their set of choices, but it is absolutely not something that's reasonable uh, for you to uh, uh, you know, make happen, especially on, uh, in the office that it's happening while you're still uh, employed. And just A, uh, this is how most firms get started, so be ready with a business plan so that the client can review. Well, I mean, that's certainly true if you were going to do it. Uh, you should be ready with an idea about how you were going to run the business so you can explain it to them and why it actually makes sense that they should jump over for you. It's just that it's still unethical. Um, so, I mean, A is certainly true. You should absolutely do that if you're going to do it, but you just shouldn't do it. All right. And All right, thank you, Mike. Yeah, uh, two questions. Uh, I think that uh, we should we should send your way here. One question is, can you talk about the multiplier again? So there's a, a quite a few questions about the multiplier, uh, specifically about uh, profit being included in the multiplier and whether it is and whether it isn't. Yeah, so um, it, it depends a little bit on the contract type. Um, sometimes you'll see, uh, some of you may have seen the term cost plus contracts. Um, and what the plus part is fee, cost plus fee. And in that sense, the word fee is actually profit. It's a little bit more typical for that uh, terminology to be used for the construction um, uh, construction fee uh, and, and uh, building the actual building. Um, but it is actually sometimes used for architects as well. And that's a situation where there's the cost and then you're saying plus this 5% uh, fee built on top of it. And so you're, you're showing all your costs, the ownership, uh, the client is seeing all of your costs, 
and then they know that they're going to then add a fee. So the fee is built into the nature of the contract, and so it does. You don't need to build in any uh, uh, profit into any of the other numbers because it's just not uh, necessary. But the typical, uh, where you have a stipulated sum, uh, some people refer to it as a lump sum, uh, like our example of the $400,000 fee, that's a stipulated sum. That's where somebody has said, we will design this building for you for this amount. Uh, and in that case, if you want to cover your rent and you want to cover your insurance and you want to cover the computers and you want to cover the benefits and the travel for conferences and all that and the hourly wages wages um i like hourly wages that reminds me of my work um the hourly wages of the employees um you know you need to add that multiplier but along with that would be some level of uh, profit um different firms will include different amounts uh, and you would either include that in or you might uh, sort of figure out how many hours you think you, you would need and then just add a few extra hours that then becomes a buffer uh, that if you need them, you have them. Um, but if you don't need them, they become the profit. Uh, so there's a couple different ways to think about it, but it absolutely profit would definitely be part of the multiplier. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, I also like the nuance uh, sort of description there, depending on the different uh, contract types. We did have a couple questions about trying to understand the difference between supplemental versus additional services. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, uh, you could all we could all come up with a bunch of things that are not part of every project, but are you know reasonably common. Uh, I mentioned a, a couple of them. The as-built would be one. Uh, marketing materials would be another. Um, uh, extensive work on FF&E. Um, it's like, uh, so FF&E, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. Um, you know, if you're doing an office layout, um, uh, you know, you're, where you're actually doing the architecture of the building, but there's an office in there, uh, it, it is not necessarily expected that you would uh, figure out, you know, how many desks they need and uh, how big the desk is and where, you know, where are they going to buy it from and things like that. That's that's part of the sort of interior build out. Um, the the FF&E is sort of separate, but, you know, there's lots of projects where, yeah, well, it's separate, but it's really a big part of the project and it just makes sense to put it in together. So that would be another one that would be listed in supplemental services. And if you if you take a look at the B101, Supplemental services. There's probably 20 or 25 items that are listed out uh, in a in a, in a table in a schedule, uh, and if you check next to it, that means it's now part of the contract. And if you don't, then it's not part of the contract. So supplemental services means uh, there's something that is uh, done often enough that they've built it into the contract, uh, but it's not part of the basic contract unless uh, the two parties, the architect and the owner, um, the client, uh, unless those two parties actually check that box and in, therefore include it in uh, to that contract. Additional services is similar, uh, but it doesn't have the chart in the same way. Uh, it's just there's, you know, there's situations that are just unusual. So, um, you know, it might be that you have a, an additional service of 
prior to the project kicking off, uh, going and visiting different sites with the owner uh, to see if the site looks like a good opportunity as, a, as the site they should buy. Um, you know, it, it's, that's just a little specific and, and not, it, it just wouldn't necessarily fall easily into the supplemental services, but it's not an unreasonable thing to add in uh, to the architectural services overall. And so it would be an additional service that's part of, that's beyond the basic service, but it didn't happen to find a way into the list of supplemental services. Um, I think there's actually some subtle differences as well between them uh, beyond that, but I think that's probably the easiest way to, to think about them. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Uh, that was great. All right. Um, so those are the key questions. So uh, thank you, Mike. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. As I mentioned at our next ARE Live broadcast uh, on May 20th of 2021, we'll run, run through an exercise from one of our virtual workshops uh, with instructor Darian Ziegler. We'll go through a project management exercise and discuss a variety of issues related to that exam. It'll be a really good opportunity to see how hands-on and um, you know, sort of in-depth the virtual workshops are. So you know, be sure to uh, tune in for that. We're posting a link so, so that you can register to that right now in the chat box uh, so you can uh, sign up. Uh, as a reminder, we've launched our ARE guarantee. We're so confident that uh, if you use our expert membership to the fullest that you'll pass the ARE and if you don't, we're putting our money where our mouth is, and we'll, we will pay for your retake. Uh, so, so to learn more about how to qualify for that guarantee or to check out our individual memberships and see what kinds of materials we offer, you can go to blackspectacles.com to check that out. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're, uh, we're kicking off something new uh, in the coming months uh, that you can get on the beta list for. It's called Spectacular. Uh, it'll be the professional network for architects. Uh, it'll be a place where uh, you know, firms can find their next great talent and architects can land uh, sort of the, you know, we, we have written here the dream job. That sounds a little cheesy to me. Maybe not your dream job, but, you know, a really awesome job. Um, so uh, <laughs> only a few more days left to sign up to be part of that group uh, so you can sort of get private and uh, special access. If you go to spectacular.design, you can add yourself uh, to our list of folks who we're going to be inviting to Spectacular in uh, just the next couple of days. Uh, that link is also being shared in the chat. The lucky winner of a Black Spectacles t-shirt uh, for posting in our area community during our session today is Roberto R. Uh, Roberto, we will reach out to you via email to get your size and shipping information. And just a reminder, if you'd you know, like to be eligible to win a t-shirt, you know, all you have to do is post a question in the ARE community during our live session. But more importantly, um, you know, the community is always buzzing. It's a place, not just for ARE Live, it's a place where you can ask any questions. You know, we, we, we eventually sort of figured out that, you know, as you're going through your studies, you need someone to ask a question to. That's exactly what we built the community for. We have experts who check in there regularly um, to answer your questions. So definitely, uh, you know, include that as a part of your studies. I mentioned there would be a discount. So uh, as you're making your summer plans, it's hard to believe people are thinking about the summer now, but um, it's coming. So if you're making your summer plans, don't forget uh, to stay on track with studying for the ARE. And to help you with that, we're offering a 15% discount on all 12-month memberships um, to get you an opportunity to get licensed this year. So use code A-R-E-L-I-V-E-A-P-R-1-5 uh, to get 15% off all of our 12-month memberships. And uh, that coupon is going to expire on May 20th when our next ARE Live airs. 
Finally, tomorrow we'll email you a follow-up about today's live broadcast, so please let us know what you think uh, and share any suggestions that you may have. Uh, be sure to take our survey right after this webinar uh, to give us some feedback. I promise that we read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching.